0: Well, I wonder how you catch breath after a pretty momentous type of day. Or what even helps you collect yourself after a series of events that have turned the world upside down for good or for ill in your life. How do you catch breath? How do you collect yourself at times like that? Well, it might be, you know, a long walk in the country or a short holiday or a trip home, a lie-in a glass of wine or two, or a cup of tea, good chat with friends and family normally. All of these things and more might help us collect our thoughts and comfort us at times of great change, help us gear up for the next step that we need to take. Think of them as a kind of retreat to the familiar. And sometimes we need to retreat a bit, don't we, in order to move forwards imagine then how the disciples might have felt after seeing jesus die on the cross only to be reported as alive again by mary magdalene and then being with him themselves being with him themselves on two subsequent occasions can you imagine the kind of turbulence that that would have raised for them the kind of questions that they would have their need to draw breath at that point, And they needed to catch breath for sure. So they retreated to the familiar. Having travelled back to Galilee, the group of disciples for whom that place was home took out their old boats, just like they used to do, led by Simon Peter, and loaded their familiar fishing nets. Now what follows is that passage that we just heard Sarah read, recorded at the end of John's Gospel. It's chapter 21. It's a kind of epilogue to John's Gospel. And that epilogue is the focus of the last of our sermon series, as John mentioned at the beginning, Jesus by the Sea, which we've been enjoying this summer. It's taken us to places in the Gospels where sea, as place and imagery, has shaped the events and teaching of Jesus' life. And we've just heard that passage, 21 chapter, 21st chapter, 1 to 14, recounting a lakeside breakfast, the third and final resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples that's recorded in John's Gospel. And I hope you enjoyed it as you were listening to it. It seems to me to have a real sense of intimacy mixed with a kind of completion. There are a number of ends get tied back together again, as they so often do in epilogues. And perhaps, particularly at the end of a wet August, I can virtually smell the fresh fish smoking over the hot barbecue. We haven't had much of that in the last couple of weeks. We're going to explore that passage by first looking at the appearance of Jesus itself and how indeed he was recognized, because that wasn't a simple process. And then we'll consider what difference Jesus made that day to fishermen who were hoping for a catch. And then finally, we'll consider what difference we might make alongside Jesus in, if you like, throwing our nets. So we're going to begin... with that uh, story of Jesus being recognized by the disciples. If you want to follow the passage again, it's on 1090 of the Church Bibles, and as usual, there's a summary of what I'm going to say. Now, my sense of smell, I just mentioned fish and barbecues, my sense of smell is much more reliable than my sense of sight. Uh, which is a bit worrying given I'm scoring the cricket from the boundary this afternoon, but never mind. I mean, for example, with my specs off last week in the swimming pool changing rooms, I started talking to a complete stranger on the assumption that he was my son, Tom. With my my glasses off, his blurred outline seemed extremely familiar and the colour of his hair. And this made me think about, how do we recognize others? I mean, if I take my glasses off now, I promise you I cannot recognize a single face here. All that I have to go on is people's shape, hair color, where they normally sit, you know, and that sort of thing. Now, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, by mentioning names of uh, people who have silver hair or always sit in the same place uh, at the 9.30 service. But I guarantee you, I can see nothing uh, without those specks on. Now, the disciples won't have had specks for sure, but nonetheless, we're told in the passage that early in the morning they struggled to recognize Jesus standing on the shore. They could hear him when he spoke, but they couldn't recognize him at first. So, how did they eventually recognize Jesus? Well, Matthew's Gospel had noted that Jesus had said, after I've risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So maybe they were expecting to meet him there. Maybe that was the place that they knew they'd see him. Well, Jesus had often sought time alone, hadn't he, during his ministry. So maybe seeing a solitary figure on the the shore of the lake in the early morning mist meant that could well have been Jesus. Or perhaps it was his tone of voice that carried a certain authority as he gave them instructions about throwing your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. Or perhaps... It was the amazing catch of fish that resulted. That seems to be the evidence that Simon Peter and the rest need. And their reaction at that point of hauling in this huge catch is one of great surprise and great joy. That flicks the switch for them. It is the Lord Simon Peter runs as he joins him on the shore. So how do you and I recognize Jesus? When we consider our relationship with him, whatever that means for us, or whatever stage that's at, how do we recognize his authentic presence and voice? What outline confirms it? What event would we look to have realized What tone of voice does he have? From where does he come? Have we ever had that feeling? It is the Lord. Perhaps we've had that at a moment when we share bread and wine in communion or when we seek an answer to prayer. Searching for the authentic voice of Jesus is part of the key goal of our life as his disciples. Now, on that Galilee morning, what follows their recognition that Jesus is again amongst them, what follows that is more than just any old reunion. It is, of course, a scene of hospitality, of friendship, of sharing, and it's all of those things. But it's also a time when the meaning of... Past events, things that have happened in the past of their relationship, are echoed in a new way. And the circle, if you like, is closed. Let me give you a few examples. On that Galilee morning, as Jesus proposes that they let let their nets down on the right-hand side of the boat, they will have recalled the time, the earlier time, when a miraculous catch had also come from Jesus' command that they fish in deeper water. Jesus had told them then that from now on, you will fish for men. On that Galilee morning, as Peter jumped into the water to greet Jesus, he would have recalled the earlier time when he got down off the boat towards Jesus walked on water, and let down the nets. On that Galilee morning, as Jesus later distributed bread and fish to them, they will have recalled that earlier time when at the last supper, he took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated in that last meal that they shared together. And they would recall that all he'd said then about his sacrifice and rising again had come true. He'd said, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus closes the circle. He enables the disciples to take the next step. This was more than a reunion. This was a new beginning. My second point is about the difference that Jesus made then. I mean, I suppose, you know, if we were to, as a church, strip out, just imagine this for a moment, if we were to strip out Jesus Christ from what we do here, what would be left? If we had a year without prayer, a year without worship, a year without Alpha courses, what would be left? People might still come to our coffee mornings for a while. People might still enjoy the cricket match. Well, the odd talk might still capture their attention. But soon, you and I would realize what we were doing was pretty pointless. Nothing compelling would draw people here as opposed to lots of other well-meaning events around the village, we'd think it a daft idea, wouldn't we? Because we know that Jesus Christ is our purpose. And without him and his Spirit, there's nothing that we can do that's of any lasting significance. We're a church. And that means we're a place of prayer and a place of action. Take prayer away... And our actions are merely those of mortals, like anyone walking up and down the street today. Take our action away, leaving only prayer, and we're a holy group, but a group that struggle to make that holiness of any lasting value. No, we're a church. And that means we're trying to follow God's will for us, working and living in His power. We've said that the disciples were retreating to the familiar there in Galilee, perhaps wondering what life was going to be like when they were fishing for men, for people. Fishing. They threw out their nets to the left and caught nothing. Diddly squat. Then Jesus said, try the other side. And John tells us that the Jesus difference was 153. That is a big number of fish. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore laden with fish, and it was a bumper haul. Now, why does John tell us this story? Because the disciples learned that day that without the Lord they wouldn't achieve much. Without the Lord, they wouldn't achieve much. And John wanted us to learn that too. And why does John give us that number, 153? Because the disciples learned that day that the Jesus difference is big. So big, they counted it. And John wanted us to learn that too. Have we climbed aboard for the bumper hall? Do we know the Jesus difference? Trust that it'll happen here? Pray for it to happen here? Do we seek it in all that we do? These are questions that each one of us could ask ourselves whenever we play our part in church As Jill Marsden prayed earlier, a number of us were at Andrew Cowie's inauguration as vicar of Thames Ditton last Wednesday. And knowing Andrew as well as I do, I was struck but not surprised by his determination to help Thames Ditton know the Jesus difference. We watched and prayed as he climbed aboard to take up the nets there. So please pray that God will, as Jill herself prayed, mightily bless that others in that church will follow his lead and set their sights high and cast their nets to Jesus' leading. So my final section, throwing our nets. What is it to throw our nets? Well, as you can imagine, I've been re-reading and reading yet again this passage during this week. And I found myself returning to Jesus' simple command to Simon Peter. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. I kept returning to those words, throw your net, because this seems to me an important command then and now. Then, because it was to bring fish at that moment, and shortly afterwards, it would inspire the beginnings of the new Christian movement. As the disciples spread the news of the Jesus difference throughout the world. But now, nowadays, I take throw your net as a command for us How else are we to grow more deeper and closer followers of Jesus if our nets are under lock and key? And so I'm going to conclude with it as a theme for the final words of my sermon. And you know, at Andrew's inauguration on Wednesday, we read from a different part of John's Gospel, one where the seed that dies produces many new seeds that live. There's a story of sacrifice in that, of course. But it's relevant to us now, especially as a story of multiplication. Now, 153 isn't an easy sum to get to, for me at least. St. Augustine, you know, he calculated that it was the answer to a formula based on sequential single-digit numbers multiplied by the Ten Commandments and the seven spirits of God. But what I think we're meant to draw from John writing down that number is very simply that the Jesus difference is big and that when we throw our nets in faith and in obedience, we should set our sights high, therefore. After all, we live in an age of nets, the net of connections, the net of toddler's praise, the net of Facebook, the net of work and of school, the net of home, the net of teams and family and university and clubs. So as we cast our minds forward to this church's guest Sunday, which John mentioned at the beginning, on the 4th of October, we might think about the nets that we possess. And there are two mistakes that we could make. First, that our nets are not the right nets. Too many holes, not big enough, won't catch the type of fish we're looking for. Second, that we don't know when or to which side of the boat we should throw them. To avoid these errors, perhaps we need to... Cast our eyes, as the disciples did that Galilee morning, to the shore. Recognize Jesus and follow his command. And that'll involve us in prayer and action. Prayer that we might feel the Jesus difference here and be guided by it and encouraged by it. Action that we might have the faith to climb aboard, to bring in his hall, working together, what a hall we might expect! Or what strikes me as remarkable, you too perhaps, that Jesus put his faith in fishermen and others, but principally fishermen to start his church. He didn't put his faith in politicians or establishment leaders or the overtly religious. We've seen this week that compassion is found, I believe, in the great heart of the ordinary people. And that lasting change is best when it's begun by the popular movement of the Spirit within all of us. In Jesus' time as now, politicians will miscalculate, misread and be driven before expediency, before heart or truth. Yes, as Christians, the net that we carry under Jesus Christ, our Lord, is both a privilege and a burden. It's one of, that will draw people to Himself. For there all find love, and all find refuge, all find acceptance, and all find peace. Just a few words to conclude. Until that net is brought home, we're all fish swimming in a deep sea without aim, memory, or recognition. Our senses are only partly alive. Our need for nourishment, reproduction, and safety are our principal drivers. As Christians, we're drawn to Jesus Christ as Lord and have found peace there. Acceptance in our sinfulness. Refuge in our aimlessness. But in a world that battles against itself our pain is held our pain is held but it is not ended we're told that Jesus has one final harvest to come and we live in that faith and in that expectation your kingdom come we pray let us pray that the pain of the world will not be long extended before all seek the forgiveness that's been won on the cross and seek to live in that truth. Until one day Jesus will throw the net and bring in the final harvest. May we be ready that day. Amen. I'm going to pray now. We might just close our eyes as we do that. And then we're going to follow that up with a couple of worship songs from the band, which will bring our service to a nice and gentle end. And we can place ourselves in God's hands this morning. After a I've prayed, and as the music plays, I really hope that during that time, you'll want to pray too. And there will be prayer ministry people at the front and at the back. And as I've said, without prayer, our actions are futile. We're a church of prayer and action. You may want to pray for the refugee situation. You may want to pray for leaders, for the children who are outside now. Whatever it is, I hope you'll pray. So let's pray.